Hello and welcome to the third episode of Legacy of Brutality Season 1. This is me, ya boy, Hollywood Steve of the Dead and Lovely Horror Movie Podcast. First, I'd like to apologize for the episode not getting up on Friday, but I have a reason for that. This is actually the hardest uh, period for me to deal with. I was dreading it as I was coming into the first season. I had done the research on it and I was really having trouble tying it up in an effective way. I had a 30 page script for this, which would be three times the size of a regular episode. And uh, trying to break it in half wasn't working. Uh, and then finally I figured out a way to make a 30 minute episode predominantly about the 40s while not leaving out the most important elements. I also had trouble with this period because admittedly the 1940s is not a great time for horror movies. In this episode we're going to talk a bit about why that is. We're going to talk about the Hayes Code and its effect on horror film. But we're also going to talk about the positives from the 40s, which include the rise of B-movies and the appointing of Val Luton as head of horror at RKO. Aside from the current period in horror cinema history, the 80s are my favorite era of horror. And I'll admit that a large majority of those films are really bad. So please don't take it too personally when I say that while the 1940s brought us a number of legitimately great horror movies, there were certainly a lot of quickly produced attempts to cash in on the popularity of the Universal Monsters. So let's start out with the Hayes Code. So in 1915, the Supreme Court of the United States decided unanimously that free speech did not extend to motion pictures. That's right, you heard me. Unanimously. Nine to zero. Uh, in this court was Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. This is the same Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., that wrote in a dissenting opinion just four years later, we should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions that we loathe and believe to be fraught with death. This decision would have a major impact on the content of motion pictures by the end of the 1930s. So to get out ahead of the government regulating Hollywood, Hollywood attempted to regulate itself. The Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors of America was formed in 1922, and Postmaster General Will Hayes resigned his position to become the organization's first chairman. Hiring Hayes was a PR move. Hayes had strong conservative cred, and he was a Presbyterian deacon. But what Hollywood presented as self-censorship was actually aimed at circumventing censorship. Hayes would spend much of his time persuading individual state censor boards to not ban films, and to lower the cost of submitting the film for censor board review. Yeah, they had to pay these turds to censor their movies. Yeah, I don't know. The early 20th century was crazy. His efforts didn't do much to stop calls for censorship. So in 1927, under the advice of Hayes, several studio execs got together to make a list they called the don'ts and be carefuls. The don'ts included things like white slavery and miscegenation, inference of sex perversion, ridicule of the clergy, nudity, drug use, and profanity. A majority of the be carefuls were in regard to violence and sexuality. While the list was approved by the Federal Trade Commission and implemented, there was really no way to enforce the tenets of the list. 
1929, concerned about the allure of sound films on the children, Jesuit priest Daniel A. Lord teamed with the editor of the motion picture Herald, Martin Quigley, to create a code of movie standards that they submitted to the studios. In February of 1930, several studio heads met with Lord and Quigley, and after some revisions, they agreed to the code. The Motion Picture Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code, would stave off government censorship by laying out a set of rules and enforcing them through the Studio Relations Committee. The code contained pretty much the same guidelines as the earlier don'ts and be carefuls, but had a very heavy influence of Catholic morality. Before the onset of heavy enforcement of the code, Hollywood films would sometimes contain sexual innuendo, sex between white and black people, drug use, prostitution, abortion, depictions of homosexuality, you know, real life. Bad guys would win, sometimes escape justice, women would express sexual desire. The art reflected the real, true life we experience. Life is complicated. Especially in the 20s and 30s, it was complicated. Silent horror films had never proven a major concern for censors and censorship activists. The introduction of sound, however, added atmosphere, macabre dialogue, and screams. Ah! Oh no! And the moralizing zealots weren't about to overlook anything so titillating as a scream. We all know we get titillated when we hear screams. Ah! Oh, I'm sorry, guys. You might have to pull over. Be careful. While many of the elements found objectionable were actually acceptable under the Hayes Code, local cinemas and states would recut or refuse to show certain films that went against the will of the local morality mob. Enforcement of the Hayes Code in the early 30s was still very relaxed. The code was widely seen as too prudish, and the studio's need to draw in audiences during the Great Depression led many to simply ignore the code. Several horror films we discussed last week pushed the boundaries set by the code. Universal's 1931 Frankenstein was condemned for Victor Frankenstein's God Complex, and of course the scene where the creature kills a little girl by throwing her in the lake. Spoiler alert for an almost 100-year-old movie. <laughs> Those scenes were removed in New York, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. Kansas would only accept Frankenstein if 32 cuts were made that would have halved the film's running time. Todd Browning's Freaks was seen as overly disturbing and was a box office bomb partially because it was shown on so few screens. An Island of Lost Souls, an adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau, was rejected by 14 local censor boards and considered against nature in Great Britain, where it would be banned until 1958. An amendment to the code was adopted which established the Production Code Administration on June 13, 1934. It also required all films released on or after July 1, 1934 to get a certificate of approval before being released. Prominent Catholic layman Joseph Breen was appointed head of the new PCA, and Breen's enforcement of the code was notoriously rigid. He infused his own religion and morality into the process, and he engaged in political censorship, including forbidding Warner Brothers from making a film about Nazi concentration camps in the mid-1930s. They also pressured MGM to drop plans to adapt Sinclair Lewis's anti-fascist novel, It Can't Happen Here. By 1935, when Bride of Frankenstein was released, enforcement of the code was in full swing. 
and the doctor's god complex was now forbidden. Although a scene of the creature that could very easily be considered blasphemous and the coded homosexual character Praetorius made it past Breen. The Limley family would be out in 1936 at Universal Studios, uh, which would mean the dedication that Carl Jr. had to horror films would be out the window. Though the people who came in did see the potential for horror films to make money. At the time, declining box offices for Universal Horror Movies combined with the increasing censorship from the PCA led to a period of marked decline in the number and quality of Universal Horror Films, and horror films in general. In 1937 and 1938, Universal didn't release a single horror film, though they did re-release Dracula and Frankenstein as a double feature in 1938. The double bill proved very popular and would begin the revitalization of Universal's horror output with the 12-part serial The Phantom Creeps, starring Bela Lugosi as a mad scientist attempting to take over the world, and the enormously successful Son of Frankenstein, which stars both Boris Karloff as the monster and Bela Lugosi as Igor, as well as Basil Rathbone in his first horror film as Baron Wolf von Frankenstein. Son of Frankenstein was well received for the great performances by Karloff, Lugosi, and Rathbone, although it was considered a bit silly by most critics. This would be the last time Karloff would play the role of Frankenstein's monster. The renewed interest in Universal horror films would spark 16 Universal monster films throughout the 1940s. Many of these still hang well with the earlier Golden Age Universal monsters, but the tone and the level of sincerity with which the Universal Horror films were made throughout the 40s is a somewhat questionable blip in the history of horror cinema. 1940 saw The Invisible Man Returns with Vincent Price starring as The Invisible Man, but Price's face is only in the film for a total of about one minute. It, along with The Invisible Woman, which came out a year later, would receive Oscar nominations for Best Special Effects and The Invisible Man Returns was a financial success at the box office. At the end of 1941, Universal would introduce The Wolfman as played by Lon Chaney Jr. Now, as I said last episode, The Wolfman had already been introduced in Werewolf of London, but The Wolfman we most often see associated with the Universal Monsters is the Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman. And since that's the case, Lon Chaney Jr. entered the pantheon of Universal Monsters alongside his father's phantom character from the 1920s. Lon Chaney Jr. had starred in his first horror film earlier in the year in Universal's sci-fi horror Man-Made Monster. The director of Man-Made Monster, George Wagner, would also direct The Wolfman. Jack Pierce was responsible for the makeup design. If you listened to the last episode, you've heard his name a whole lot. Jack Pierce was at Universal for a long time. Uh, and his his career was pretty amazing. I mean, even if you look at some of the the films I will mention here in in a few minutes, even though some of them were really uh, maybe campy, they weren't exactly highest quality. Anytime Jack Pierce was involved, the makeup was great. This was actually Jack Pierce's original design for the 1935 film Werewolf of London. But that had been scrapped, as I said last episode, by Henry Hull, the actor, because it was inconsistent with the script, because you couldn't actually tell it was him under there. And in the script, he was recognized by a couple characters, so. Lon Chaney Jr.'s makeup would take five to six hours to apply, and then another hour to remove. In the first Wolfman, the transformation scenes aren't as prevalent as they are in the sequels. 
the the first transformation we see is actually just the wolf man's feet going from man feet to werewolf feet and at the end we see the wolf man transform back to a human as he dies it's also interesting to note that in this film it's not the the moon that changes the werewolf in fact that isn't introduced as the transformation catalyst for the werewolf until two years later when frankenstein met the wolfman the wolfman was well received by critics of the day and still well regarded today it is the lone horror film from the 1940s on the rotten tomatoes top 100 horror list that's right the entire decade there's only one film in the top 100 now there of course other top 100s that include other 1940s films but rotten tomatoes at the very least, seems to only like the Wolfman. The next year, Lon Chaney Jr. would also take up the mantle of Frankenstein's monster in The Ghost of Frankenstein, and Bela Lugosi would return as Igor. In the film, Igor's brain is implanted into the monster, causing the creature to take on Igor, that is Bela Lugosi's voice. The Invisible Agent would come out in 1942, not long after the Pearl Harbor attack. It was written by Kurt Seidmack, a refugee from Nazi Germany, and it was an anti-Nazi wartime propaganda film with the Invisible Man as the protagonist. This was just a strongly anti-Nazi, let's go beat him up, hooray America type of film. So if you didn't already know it, the Invisible Man is Antifa. But the film was both critically and financially successful, and it earned an Oscar nomination for Best Special Effects. However, the New York Times review makes a point that has proven true in recent history. The reviewer writes, Invisible Agent takes the ruinous point of view that maniacal brutes may be simultaneously shown as laughable dolts. It is as incredible as a joke told in a nightmare. Also in that year, Lon Chaney Jr. would step into another iconic role created by Boris Karloff, starring as The Mummy in The Mummy's Tomb. Chaney would actually play the role two more times, uh, once again in The Mummy's Ghost and The Mummy's Curse. That's right, a mummy can have a ghost. Although Universal seemed to want it, Lon Chaney could not play every role. So, when it came to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in March of 1943, Universal brought Bela Lugosi in to play Frankenstein's monster opposite Chaney's Wolfman. Lugosi had famously turned down the role of the monster in the original Frankenstein, and he had already appeared in the series as Igor, and as the voice of Frankenstein's monster. Anyway, he's Frankenstein's monster now. It all makes sense. Lugosi turned 60 during filming and suffered from exhaustion requiring heavy use of stand-ins. All the various stuntmen standing in for Lugosi creates an inconsistency in the appearance of the monster throughout the film. Serving as a sequel to The Wolfman and The Ghost of Frankenstein, the film is structured in a way that we don't actually get to Frankenstein until 35 minutes into the film. For a 75-minute film, that's about halfway through. It's a little late to introduce one of the titular characters. After a little over two years of working on Universal horror films, Lon Chaney Jr. would be called on to play a fourth Universal monster as Count Alucard in Son of Dracula. The film is set on a New Orleans plantation like Anne Rice's novels after it. Though I'll let the director Robert Seidmack speak to the quality of the film. Uh, that's right, Robert, Robert Seidmack is the brother of Kurt Seidmack, who wrote so many of these movies. But Robert Seidmack was reluctant to take the film, calling the script terrible. It had been knocked together in a few days, he said. He continued, 
We did a lot of rewriting and the result wasn't bad. It wasn't good, but some scenes have a certain quality. And despite the fact that I'm saying it's not great, the film was the first to show an on-screen bat-to-man transformation and the first to show a vampire turning into mist and back into corporeal form. So it did contribute to the visual language of vampire films. And guess who was responsible for those awesome transformation scenes? Why, John P. Fulton, who I mentioned last time, he's the guy who parted the Red Sea in the Ten Commandments. The Invisible Man's Revenge and She-Wolf of London would be the last to feature only one monster, and I'll talk more about She-Wolf of London next week. House of Frankenstein brought together the Wolfman, Count Dracula, and Frankenstein's monster, as well as a mad scientist played by Boris Karloff. Early days of the script involved more characters from Universal Horror Movies. The Mummy, The Invisible Man, The Ape Woman from the 1943 film Captive Wild Woman, which I'll talk about next week, and The Mad Ghoul from Mad Ghoul, like Universal's attempt at a suicide squad or something. Glenn Strange's portrayal of Frankenstein's monster in this and later in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein would cement the idea of the monster as shambling, clumsy, and inarticulate, which is a far cry from the creature in Mary Shelley's original, though is the more comfortable depiction of Frankenstein's monster today. The sequel to House of Frankenstein, of course, was House of Dracula, which would bring back the Wolfman, Dracula, and Frankenstein's monster for another go-round. Glenn Strange, John Carradine, and Lon Chaney Jr. would all reprise their respective roles. The film actually recycles moments from past films, showing both Karloff and Chaney as the monster. It's not exactly high quality. It would be the last film for Lon Chaney Jr. under contract with Universal, though he did return in 1948 to play the Wolfman in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Also returning for the horror comedy with the outrageously popular comedy duo of the time, Abbott and Costello, would be Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula. This was the only time he reprised the role as Dracula. Universal tried to get Karloff to return to play Frankenstein's monster, though he declined. And I'll talk more about Karloff wanting to get away from that role when we talk about RKO pictures in a little bit. So Universal brought back Glenn Strange to play the monster. Vincent Price also makes an uncredited cameo as the voice of the Invisible Man at the end. The film is much more comedy than horror, but it was a successful swan song for the Universal Monsters that would be followed in the 50s by the sequels in which Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man, who I guess they'd already met, so the title wasn't exact. I mean, I don't know. He didn't introduce himself. Did they meet? Who knows? Uh, then they met Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde simultaneously. I don't know. And then later, The Mummy. In the last two weeks, I've been talking so much about universal horror films that you would get the idea that they dominated horror films throughout the 30s and 40s, which is kind of true. <laughs> it's, it's not entirely false. But another of the big five studios of Hollywood's golden age would begin to invest heavily in horror films in the 1940s, RKO. They'd already entered the foray in 1933 with King Kong. But it would actually be the company's film Citizen Kane that would cause RKO to begin producing more horror films. Despite the strong reviews upon its release, William Randolph Hearst's objection to being portrayed in the film however covertly led him to ban any advertising, reviewing, or mentioning of it in his papers. And he had his journalist libel Orson Welles. Some theaters refused to play the film out of fear of Hearst. 
Citizen Kane, the film that is most often used as an example of the greatest film ever made, would be a box office bomb upon its initial release. In 1942, RKO would name Val Luton their head of horror, which has to be the coolest title anyone's ever been given. Luton had moved to America with his family from the Russian Empire at five years old. He had worked for producer David O. Selznick in the 30s as a scout for literary properties to adapt and a go-between with the MPPC. His experience working with the MPPC would help him in creating horror films that would get through the censors. He would also have to work within a set of three rules provided to him by RKO. Rule one, each film had to come in under a $150,000 budget. That's roughly $2.5 million in 2020 dollars. Rule two, each had to have a runtime under 75 minutes. And number three, his supervisors at RKO would supply the film titles. Luton's ingenuity in taking what RKO gave him and making the most of it would go on to inspire directors like Steven Spielberg, who used Luton's technique of keeping the monster unseen to increase the terror of seeing it in Jaws. The titles RKO would provide to Val Luton for the movies were pretty sensational, and they would be shown as the B-movie, which is why they had to be under 75 minutes. The B-movie is the less publicized bottom half of a double feature. The Western was the primary staple B-movie for a while in Hollywood, but RKO would find a good bit of success with B-horror movies. Now, the designation of B-movie should not be seen as a critique of the quality of the film. Many B-movies are very artistically rich and well-made films. They're often made B-movies because the studio wasn't sure they would make money on their own. These films would be packaged together and distributed to all of these uh, movie theaters that the studio itself owned. So, these films would have to be shown. The packaging of films in this way was part of the studio distribution system until a Supreme Court antitrust suit in 1948. The Supreme Court outlawed this type of booking, and it also led to the big five studios divesting entirely from theater chains, which is a good thing. In just four years as the head of horror, Val Luton would make common many different techniques used in horror today. Luton developed ways of manipulating the audience with music and tone and he made heavy use of jump scares, particularly a technique called the Luton Butts, which was first used in the 1942 film Cat People. In Cat People, the protagonist Alice is being chased down an alley. The music is swelling when suddenly a bus pulls into frame with a loud hiss and screech. So the Luton Bus is when the jump scare turns out to be something innocuous. And this was the first significant jump scare in the sound era. Jump scares hadn't been used as readily in silent horror films as the technique requires the use of music, An environmental sound helps as well. Though one good example of a jump scare from the silent film era is the Phantom being unmasked, which is accompanied by appropriate music. And I'm going to skip over Cat People for, for this week, because I'm going to discuss it more next week, along with a number of other films I've mentioned along the way when I'm going to talk about the prevalence of female monsters in 1940s and 50s horror films. Cat People was directed by Jacques Turner, who would direct two more horror films for RKO. I Walked with a Zombie and The Leopard Man. You see what I'm saying about these titles? Pretty sensational. I Walked with a Zombie was actually taken from an article with the same title written by Inez Wallace for American Weekly Magazine. 
Wallace wrote about people working in Haitian plantations whose vocal cords and cognitive abilities had been impaired by drugs, making them obedient servants. Luton had his writers adapt this with Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre in mind. They also researched Haitian voodoo practices. The film was written by Kurt Seidmack, who I said before wrote a ton of Universal's horror films, and Ardell Ray, a dun-dun-dun woman. Luton brought Ray on from the Young Writers Program and would have her work on several of his horror films at RKO and later recruited her to work with him at Paramount. Unfortunately, she would be blacklisted in the early days of the McCarthy era when she refused to name names of supposed communist sympathizers. Ray would also co-write The Leopard Man, one of the first American films to attempt a realistic portrayal of serial murderers. While the reviews of the film were mixed at the time, it since gained a cult following. Luton also brought the editor of Citizen Kane, Robert Wise, and his assistant editor, Mark Robson, on to direct for the horror division. Wise would eventually go on to direct West Side Story and The Sound of Music, while Robson would direct Peyton Place and Valley of the Dolls. But they both got their starts directing for Val Luton's horror division. Robson directed The Seventh Victim in 1943. While the film suffers from some edits that make the story feel disjointed, critics of the time praised Robson's use of the RKO bag of tricks. The story is about a young woman stumbling on an underground cult of devil worshippers in Greenwich Village while searching for her missing sister. This is another Luton-produced film that received mixed reviews at the time, but now has a strong cult following, with many noting the undercurrents of a lesbian romance running through the film. Wise's first film for RKO was the sequel to Cat People, The Curse of the Cat People, but again, we'll talk more about that next week. In 1945, Wise directed The Body Snatcher, which was an adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's The Body Snatcher, which was based on the true story of the notorious Burke and Hare murders. The script was co-written by Val Luton himself. It also starred Boris Karloff in the first of three films he did with Luton at RKO. Karloff was super appreciative of Luton for saving him from the Frankenstein franchise and allowing him to burst out of the mold that Universal had put him in. The film also stars Bela Lugosi. The Body Snatcher was actually the last film Karloff and Lugosi would make together. Later in 1945, Mark Robson would direct Karloff in Isle of the Dead, then again in Bedlam in 1946. Both films were inspired by paintings, Isle of the Dead by Arnold Bachlin and William Hogarth's A Rake's Progress series. Just an example of Luton's ability to find intellectual properties to adapt all over the place. The last RKO film we're going to discuss is the 1946 psychological horror film The Spiral Staircase. The film was adapted from Ethel Lena White's novel Some Must Watch, and it follows a mute young woman in a Vermont town being terrorized by a serial killer who targets disabled women. The film has been praised since its release for its blend of gothic horror and film noir. More importantly, it has been cited as one of the early progenitors of the slasher film, specifically for its female-centric cast and POV camera work during scenes in which the killer stalks the victims. Modern critics have compared the film favorably to the work of Hitchcock. Ethel Barrymore would also receive an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress for her role as Mrs. Warren. RKO head Charles Kerner would die in 1946, and changes in management would see Val Luton out of a job. Luton had also had a minor heart attack around the same time. He worked a bit more before dying after two more heart attacks in 1951, at the age of only 46. His influence on the horror genre is indisputable. 
He worked to keep the genre respectable in a time of censorship, and we remain indebted to him for that. There are so many films throughout the 40s that I have skipped over. There are so many uh, things I could have talked about in here. I certainly, you know, you, you want to go more into Karloff, you want to go more into Lugosi, you want to go more into Price, which we will do in the next couple episodes. But honestly, as I've said before, th- this is just a this is a condensed quick history of horror I'm trying to do. We'll go way more in depth in the future. Be sure and follow at Dead Lovely Pod on Twitter and Instagram or join the Facebook group, Facebook.com forward slash Dead and Lovely. And if you'd like to contribute to this or Dead and Lovely, head on over to Patreon.com forward slash Dead and Lovely, become a patron. I will eventually create a Patreon for this show, but as for now, it's actually simpler for me to just have to deal with one Patreon account. Next week, we're going to discuss a tradition of female horror antagonists through the 40s and 50s. We're going to look at the decline of the production code. We're going to talk about creature features and so much more. So head on back, come back and listen to me jibber jabber into my can. Until next episode, thanks for listening to Legacy of Brutality. Goodbye.